0: Hey, everyone. It's Jeff. Thanks for joining me on the Enrealment Hour podcast. A bit of good news to share first. I just signed a foreign translation deal for my book, Grounded Spirituality, with a very bold and brave Polish publisher. I'm excited to see that book reach a broader audience. And I'm working hard on new pieces for my Enrealment newsletter, which you can find at substack.com. And a new course that relates to the development of healthy boundaries, something that very few of us were ever taught in our home environments. I see this course as a natural follow-up to the Abandonment wound Healing course that is always available for download on jeffbrown.co. An experience of early abandonment often leads in the direction of challenges with personal boundaries. We end up either rigidly boundaried or dramatically unboundaried or both at various times. Today, I share a really interesting conversation about love and relationship with Ariel Ford. Ariel has just spent over four years writing her debut novel, The Love Thief. I have read it and found it engaging and realistic, and a book that most of us can relate to in one way or another. It's a story of love, betrayal, and unexpected mystical experiences, with a juicy revenge subplot and a surprise ending. And it's inspired by actual events. In our conversation, we talk about the book, and we also dive into Ariel's perspectives on love and relationship, both the ungrounded story that most of us were told, and the real kind of love that is grounded in reality and blossoms over time. So, first, let me tell you a bit about her. Ariel Ford has been living and breathing books for more than 30 years, she's the book publicist who launched some of the world's top self-help and spiritual authors in the 1990s, including Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, Marion Williamson, Neil Donald Walsh, Louise Hay, Don Miguel Ruiz, and the late Debbie Ford, her sister, as well as the Chicken Soup for the Soul series and many others. She'd been busy. In addition to PR and marketing books, she and her husband, Brian Hilliard, were also literary agents. She's the author of 11 non-fiction books, including the Hot Chocolate for the Mystical Soul series, Turn Your Mate into Your Soulmate, and Wabi Sabi Love, The Ancient Art of Finding Perfect Love in Imperfect Relationships. The success of her book, The Soulmate Secret, in 2009, resulted in a career change, leading Ford to become a celebrated love and relationship expert speaker and coach. She lives in California with her husband and soulmate, Brian Hilliard, and their feline friends. The Love Thief is her debut novel. Speaking of love, here's a little bit of Trevor Hall's wonderful song, Arrows, to set the stage for the in heart conversation that follows.
1: This journey got me bleeding, a kind of feeling.
0: For my heart. Hey Ariel.
1: Hey Jeff, how are you?
0: Yeah, okay. It's good to be with you.
1: Thank you.
0: We're here to talk about your new book. Just came out a couple of days ago called The Love Thief. I had a chance to do I, I would call it a deep a deep browse on the book. And and what I liked about the book was its accessibility. It just felt like a really just like a very, really sort of honest and relatable sharing of somebody's very real lived experience. It didn't, it didn't feel uh, disconnected from day to day life. It felt like that kind of experience so many of us have, have had. Somehow manifesting a sociopathic person learning in all of the hardest possible ways. Beating ourselves up forevermore, until we realized that it really was primarily about where their psychology was, and then, and then finding our way to something that's more humane and realistic. I have a quote from one of my books that I thought of when I was reading it. I just want to quickly read that and tell me if this resonates with your experience of the love thief. And we'll talk about it. Uh, it's from my book, Articulations. It's called. Uh, it, the quote is, "It's not about giving up on the fairy tale relationship." It's about landing it in reality. It's about giving the fairy feet. It's about peeling away the prince's armor and loving the real being down below. It's about wiping off the princess's makeup and loving her divine humanness. It's about finding romance in the naked fires of daily life. When our masks and disguises fall away, real love can reveal itself. Forget fairy tales. The human tale is much more satisfying. We just have to learn how to get turned on by humanness, close quote. Does that resonate with your experience of this Yeah, quote?
1: It, it does. And it really reminds me of my favorite quote from Sam Keene, which is, we come to love not to find a perfect person, but to learn to love an imperfect person perfectly.
0: Oh, it's a lovely quote. Yeah. yeah. I have to check out Sam Keen's work. What prompted you to to go through the agonizing four and a half year long experience of the labor of hate that is a book, Even if you're called to it, even if it's absolutely fundamental to your sacred purpose, it's not an easy thing to do, especially a 350 page book. What brought you to it? And what sustained you all the way to the point where it's a published book?
1: Well, what happened was, I've written 11 nonfiction books, Never in my entire life did I ever have the conscious thought, oh, I should write a novel someday. That never happened. What did happen was that my husband, Brian, came into my office one day and he said to me, you should write a book about me. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yes, it should be called I Married an Alien. And I said to him, I would never write that book. This this ongoing joke we have. He thinks he's from another planet, or he might be from another planet. But when he left, I started thinking about it. Well, if I were going to write a book about Brian, what would it be about? And I thought, well, first of all, I would have to be about who he is, who has a personality. You know, he's somebody who believes that his mission in life is to make sure that everybody he comes in contact with has the experience of being loved.
0: Wonderful.
1: So, yeah, so I thought, oh, well, well, if I wrote a book, it would be about a man like that. Mm. And then this title popped into my head, The Love Walla. In India, a walla is somebody who's really good at what they do. They're your go-to person. The chai walla, the auto rickshaw walla, mm. the ghee walla. And I fell in love with the title, The Love Walla, because you know, they, they, there are no love walas per se in India, but... Oh, my God. Yes. I even got our we have a vanity plate on our car. (laughs) This is the love wallet. So and then I put the whole idea away. It's like I'm not going to write a book about Brian. And then this line came to me, the first line of the book. My mother was right. Oh, my God. That is a great opening line. And then the story of the book started to unfold in my head like a movie. I started to see it and I could see that it was taking place in Rishikesh where I've been to several times, but never looking at it like I could write about it. And then as the movie was playing in my head, I kept pushing it away going, no, get out of here. I don't want Hey, I don't want to write another book. And I don't want to learn how to write a novel. I don't know how to write a novel. So I struggled with it because the, the story was sort of inside of me kicking and screaming to get out. I was like, no, 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 get out of here. I don't want you. And then I got this email from um, masterclass.com. And they were offering a new e-course with Dan Brown on how to write a thriller. And I love Dan Brown. I thought, oh, this could be fun. I have the annual membership. I'll just sign up for the Dan Brown course. So I sign up for the Dan Brown course. And lesson number three is location as a character in the book. Mm, And he's talking about Florence, Italy as a character in Da Vinci Code. And I'm watching all of this and and then my mind's going crazy. Well, Rishikesh would be a character in my book. And, you know, the wheels are spinning. I'm like, no, no, go away. I'm not going to write this book. And then I saw that it didn't really want to go away. So I sat down and I said to God, I said, listen, God, I don't want to write this book. But if I'm supposed to write this book, then I need to manifest a business class ticket to India to go to Rishikesh to do some research. Thinking I am off the hook. This is not going to happen. That's a $7,000 ticket five years ago. 48 hours later, I have the ticket in my hand. I manifested this ticket and I just thought, okay, I'm going to Rishikesh. (laughs) And I went to Rishikesh and everything I was seeing in my head, I was tripping over. (laughs) The bookstore, the bookstore owner, the arti ceremonies, the ashrams, the, the Hanuman monkey man tying red strings around my wrist. All of it was happening instantaneously. I would have a thought, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if I had such and such, and there'd be a knock on my door and somebody would be delivering something to, I mean, it was crazy. I came home and I started writing and I was petrified because I knew I was a very strong nonfiction writer. In fact, the last time I turned in a nonfiction book to my editor at Harper, he called me and said, this book is so done, so perfect, we're not going to change a word of it. Wonderful. It's basic line edit. There's nothing to change. It's so good. So I'm going into writing fiction, not knowing what I don't know about writing fiction, not knowing that it's ridiculously. The only thing I found out that's the same between writing fiction and nonfiction, the only thing that's the same is they both use words. Other than that, there's no correlation between the two. So, that started the process and and I was so resistant and so nervous and, you know, I, I wrote like the first 30 pages and I sent it to an old friend who was a senior editor at Random House forever thinking, okay, he's going to be nice but basically tell me, you know, get, get back in your lane. Well, he wrote me this thing that basically said, girl, you can write, keep going. And I sent it to a few more people who basically said, this is so good. I can't wait to see the movie. And you're going to buy, you know, an apartment in Paris. I turned into this really needy person. I needed feedback all the time from people who who would encourage me to keep going because I knew what I, I didn't know how much I didn't know. I just knew I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and in retrospect, it's a good thing I didn't know because I wouldn't have attempted it. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm not a patient person. I'm not a perfectionist. I live in the land of good enough. And in writing a novel, good enough is not good enough. Right. So I had freelance editors. I had professional friends. I had book doctors. I, and, and I don't take feedback well. You know, and there were so many times I wanted to quit, but I didn't feel like I had a choice. I really felt like somewhere in some, Dimension, I had said yes to doing this and thank God it's over and it's done and I'm happy with how it turned out. But it was it was tough.
0: And what do you I mean, if you come into contact with the calling to write this book on a deeper sort of soulful level, what's in it for you? And and what do you imagine or hope would be in it for the for the reader themselves?
1: What is I can see now is in it for the reader was that I had a lot of early readers and so many of them called me and said, they whispered to me, oh my God, you wrote this book for me. You just told my story. I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was a story of yours. (laughs) You know, I didn't know. And I started to see that almost every woman I know has been through this experience of being involved with a toxic narcissist slash sociopath where they had their hearts broken, their dreams crushed their money stolen, and they they were just a basket case when it was all over. So for the readers, what I could see was that it's a path to solace and healing and transformation and optimism that love can come again, that, you know, like the lotus grows in the mud, that the worst experience of your life can and will transform into a life you could have never imagined, because that's the arc of the story. What I discovered for myself after I finished writing the book, because as I was writing it, Holly, my protagonist, in my mind was a combination of three women I know who've been through this experience. So none of it is 100% true. I just used all the emotions I witnessed them go through, the hate, the anger, the rage, the depth of grief, and the betrayal. And I was able to capture all that emotion because I'd been on the other end of the phone for so much of it. It wasn't until months after I finished writing that I realized I had written the book for me, that I had buried a memory of a relationship I had when I was 30 years old. I had totally forgotten it. You know, I've been married 25 years now. I thought I was totally over it, which I believe that I am totally over it, but I'd never processed it, you know, and even as that memory surfaced, oh my God, on some level, this is my story. I was shocked at the amount of shame that I felt that I had bypassed all the red flags that I had fell for all the bullshit that I had been charmed by the charismatic, super smart, charming man who told me and whispered in my ear everything I wanted to hear as he lied to me over and over and over again. So then I had to process this thing that happened 40 years ago. There's so many levels on how or why this book came. I almost feel like the woman who channeled Course in Miracles, right? It's like, like I felt like it was given to me, and and I somehow had signed up and said, "Yes, I will be the scribe to this." And I feel blessed to have been chosen, and I'm happy that people are finding not just entertainment because the book is entertaining. Holly is a very very funny, snarky, you know, contemporary young woman. She's fun. And she's also suffering. And I'm glad people are finding some wisdom and some healing in it.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Looking back on your, and you've just adverted to it, but looking back on your own lived experience with respect to this thing called love. I mean, what, and having witnessed many others go through their challenges with the conditioned notions of love. Then ultimately, the question of what is love, in fact, right. and then and then what is love that starts in one place and be, moves to another place, and what is that journey? You know, if you were talking to you at a twenty as a twenty-one-year-old, and you were actually willing to listen, what would you tell yourself about this thing called love? What have you learned from your experience with Brian and from all of your experiences and the? Um,
1: yes. Well, I think one of the things you and I have in common is that we are we're Jewish. Students, we're Jewish and we're committed students of love, right? And so, you know, like most of the people of my generation, we were raised on the Disney version of love. Someday my prince will come on a white horse and we're going to fall in love and we're going to live happily ever after. And we're going to have these champagne bubbles flowing through our veins and everything's peachy. And I believed at that time that love is a feeling. And what I've now learned is that love is a behavior and it's a choice and it's a decision and it's an action and it's a way of being. And there are some lovely feelings that come and go, but love is not a feeling. The state of being in love, which I like to call the socially acceptable form of insanity, is actually nature's greatest. Drug high. It's just a trick. It's nature's trick to get us to procreate, but it has absolutely nothing to do with what love is. There is no love in the being in love state. It is just a really fun at times, enjoyable state of being with a stranger. I mean, it happens at the beginning of a relationship. You don't know this person. And so had I talked to me at 21 to hear this download, I wouldn't have listened. Mm -hmm. It's not what I wanted to hear. Yeah. I want to be swept away. I want to have butterflies in my stomach. I don't want to hear how much work it is to actually s- sustain a relationship. You know, I don't want to hear that. And and I couldn't have heard it, you know, but now in retrospect, I have so much. I don't know what the word is, but I'm just happy that I know it now that I have this understanding that I can love Brian. I can love my soulmate, love Life partner, I can be committed and devoted to him. And there are moments when I want to kill him. And that's okay. And that's totally normal. And it doesn't mean that I don't love him, you know, because in the English language, we have this one word love. You know, what is it? Swedish have 118 words for snow, and we have one word for love, you know, and then we just run around saying, well, you know, I still love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. Therefore, we shouldn't be together. And we think mm. the grass is greener somewhere else.
0: The ass is always greener on the other side, isn't
1: it? Yes, right. <laughs> you know, and and so it's. I was able to through the character Deepak in the book, who becomes Holly's love walla, her teacher, her guide, her mentor, her friend. <laughs> you know, I was able to channel. The two decades of study about love through Deepak's voice using Brian's personality as the vehicle, his love and compassion and empathy and patience Mm. to be able to be with this young woman who is so upside down and really so immature emotionally on so many levels, but in enough pain that she wants to learn and heal. So the character Deepak, you know, people say, oh, you worked with Deepak Chopra forever. Is it Deepak? And it's like, in India, the name Deepak is as common as John or Steve or Bill. Yeah. So did I name the character after him? Yes. Is the wisdom out of his mouth pure Deepak? It's so many different people. It's all the best of what I've learned. You know, there's there's a lot of Neil Donald Walsh. There's Gay Hendricks. There's Mary Williamson. There's just everybody who taught me something about love comes out of the Love Walla's mouth.
0: What about your mother? Is your mother part of the Love Walla's teachings?
1: Only that the opening line is my mother was right, because my mother was always right, especially when it came to men. And there were some men in particular that I was thinking about that she knew that she would have forewarned Holly on. So um, I would say what I learned from my mother is that that it's never too late to have a great relationship. She and my father married very young. They hated each other. They had a terrible marriage. They divorced when I was 16. But then when I was 20, my mother met and married the love of her life. And through a bunch of crazy circumstances, I lived with them for two years, even though I was already 30. It was, But it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I got to witness what a soulmate life partnership looks like what two people who are devoted to each other, and how they interact and how they care for each other. So it wiped out all the early negative training I got and set me up to have somebody like my stepfather in my life. Because if there were ever two peas in a pod, it's my Brian and my stepfather, Doc. You know, Very similar personalities, very menschy guys.
0: When you first met Brian, I mean, are you comfortable talking about Connection. Yeah. So when you first met Brian, were you a little bit like Holly, like still hoping for a connection with a man who wasn't as wonderful, lovely, attuned, and connected as Brian?
1: No, I had a very long soulmate wish list that really had specified the heart traits and qualities I was looking for. I was way past my bad boy phase, you know, and I i knew what was important to me. I mean, there were things on my list, like I wanted to have a great mother-in-law. I wanted to be a man who loved his mother and respected women and who would be a good mother-in-law to me. And I got that totally. My mother-in-law was oh. a living Buddha. I was, you know, 43 when we met and 44 when we married. So uh, I, I was over the bad boy phase.
0: Got it. Got it. And has his view of love changed, do you think, as a result of the relationship with you?
1: You know, you'd probably have to ask him that. I don't know if it's changed. I mean, he he had a very short starter marriage when he was way young. And from what I've observed, he got really clear on who, what kind of man he wants to be in relationship and how he wants to show up and how important. Devotionism. he's always talking about devotion, you know, and he's somebody you can totally count on. He'll take a bullet for me. I, you know, I have no, he's a, in attachment theory. We'd call him a very secure, secure type. Wow.
0: Hard to find,
1: you know, and I didn't even know I was looking for that, that that was sort of a bonus thing I got that wasn't on my list. Cause I didn't know attachment theory at that time.
0: It just sounds like a really solid bhakti. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and in the enneagram, he's a two. What is a two? Oh, that's somebody who's a lover, a giver. You know, who's always there helping other people. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Is
0: there a sequel? Do you see a sequel for this book? I mean, is there? Well, I mean, if this book really, if this book really moves out into the well, world, which a, it might. Here's
1: what happened. When I first wrote the book, the book ends. With Holly in the river having a Santosha experience. Mm-hmm. I wanted the book to end not with your typical happy ending, but mm-hmm. with Holly finding wholeness. Mm-hmm. So the book ended there, the first draft of it. And then we went into lockdown. And then COVID came. Now, first we were only going to be in lockdown for two weeks. It wasn't a big deal, right? We didn't know. It just, yeah. get the,
0: just it two just weeks. Kind
1: of moved. Yeah. So once we were deep into COVID. And we weren't going anywhere. And COVID, you know, like people are dying left and right. COVID could really kill you. I started thinking, I knew what the sequel to the f- first version of the book was going to be. And then I started thinking, oh, I could die. And if I die, the sequel's not going to get written. So since I have nothing else to do and I'm trapped home, let me just turn the sequel into part two of the book. So I don't really have a sequel per se, because that's why it's so long. It's 105,000 words. However, the title for whatever book is coming next has already come to me, but I haven't seen the movie yet. So I don't know 100% what it's about or if it's going to happen or not. But yeah. um, Yeah. So there's for this, for the love thief right now in this moment, I don't have a sequel.
0: There's another fictional book waiting to get birthed inside of you
1: yes yes and it needs to it needs to calm down i got to get this one out into the world you know it's like i, I i'm still uh, recovering from the birth pains of this
0: i often think that you know the the conditioning the prince and princess condition that whole piece i mean it's just just so ridiculously delusional as we get older we realize just how preposterous it is you know we're going to find someone who's not human and we're going to be transported to some transhuman states together and we're gonna linger there forever. It reminds me almost like very much of the spiritual bypass community. It's the same kind of idea, the same kind of a notion. And but I wonder like what is it? You know, and and I look back on sort of my dating history and I was a real adventurer. I really wanted to encounter different types of people so I could encounter different parts of myself. I really saw that the relational field was about me too, was about my trying to figure out who I was in relation to something and to excavate parts of myself that I couldn't uh, access on my own in many ways. And it feels to me as though there are some people, independent of conditioning, just as a function of how they move through the world, who really do live more superficially in relation to notions of connection and intimacy. But they don't go very deep with their own process. They, just, As a result, don't go very deep with anyone else's process. And then there are others that I remember, and parts of me at times, that really, really, really wanting to have a much more substantial, meaningful, not superficial, not economically oriented experience um, from the beginning. Just We're just absolutely bored by these notions, and we're looking for something substantive on a deeper level. And I feel as though the more superficial crowd, as I encounter many of them in my life now, as they've gotten older, they've either stayed really stuck there and nothing ever really happens on a connection level in any real way, or life forces them to drop down into their bodies and back into reality. Their standards change, their requirements change, their needs change, and they begin to realize that love is, and I think your book captured it captures this, sort of a glorious opportunity to get in touch with who you really are and what it really means to relate to another human being. Has that been your experience with people you've known yeah, for the well, course I mean, of
1: your life? Like in, in our relationship, Brian's the one who likes to go deep dish. You know, he doesn't want to have small <laughs> talk. He only wants to have big talk, you know, and I'm much more superficial on a lot of levels. You know, I can go deep when I need to, but I don't want to stay there long. I don't want to be in the deep end of the pool for too long. In fact, you know, I want to go out and run around and be social and have fun, you know, so we really balance each other out there, you know, and there are people that he can go much deeper with. Like I share him with all my friends in that way, male and female, you know, they want to go deep into the consciousness conversation, go for it. Okay. I want to talk about what happened on the last episode of Manifest I just watched. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Is
0: that the, is that the airplane show?
1: Yes, it's really good. I'm totally into it. If you like the Twilight Zone, you'll like Manifest. uh, Um, But but yeah, it is. I think Alison Armstrong, who's a relationship expert (laughs) I really (laughs) admire, Alison has this great line where she said, you know, women are often too busy looking for the hairy version of themselves. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they want somebody who likes what they like, wants to do what they want to do, and there's no polarity there. You know, and I'm kind of like you know. I like the fact that I can be with somebody. that Yes, there's a certain amount of things that we are in alignment with, and we like to do together. And then there are other things we're just miles apart, and we give each other the space to you know be who we want to be and enjoy what we want to enjoy instead of making anybody right or wrong. And I think that's sort of a hard part that that people have about relationship. They they have this rigid idea. Well, if you're my soulmate. Then you're gonna intuitively know what I need and give me what I need and just like not, just
0: like mommy and daddy never did. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You
1: know, and, and I think you know, one of the gifts I had in this world was getting to interview Harville Hendricks a bunch of times when I had my Art of Love series. And I just love his whole concept where he talks about that the purpose of a, a soulmate marriage and the purpose of taking sacred vows is to put yourself in the safe container where all your childhood wounds come up for healing, you know? So yes, it will be painful and it won't be pretty, but it will be safe, mm-hmm. right? That you, they you trust your partner and they trust you and, and it can get ugly and messy and nobody's going to walk out the door. Mm-hmm. you know. And that's the part, you know, when you're looking for happily ever after, nobody wants to walk through that fire.
0: And so this it's interesting. You brought up, I just did a session recently with somebody who had this particular struggle of wanting to connect deeper, wanting to talk more deeply about consciousness, wanting to focus on authentic relating ways of being with a partner who depends how you looked at it, um, was frivolous, or was just quite satisfied, just enjoying life as it was without having to think into the deeper meaning of anything. And it could have been just because they were already there, or because they were (laughs) completely avoidant. So, how have you two, in a very real way, I'm interested, been able to accept this? Really, what could be attention uh, or but, or yeah, a point of balance?
1: Is, it isn't. I mean, I I appreciate that he's interested in those deeper conversations. He knows that I have limited uh, limited interest in those things, so I'll engage with him to a certain degree. But I'm one of these people. Like, there's people who who really want to understand stuff. Like you tell them, okay, heart math has this research on the science of heart coherence. Right, right, right. This is how it works and here are the studies. I get on my Balance app twice a day. I know how to work it. I'm happy that it works. I don't care to understand the science. I don't Got need it. to understand why being in heart coherence is good for me. All I know is that it reduces stress, makes me feel better, lowers my blood pressure. It's easy to do and I know how to work the app. It's just this balance that we have. Like I said, I live in the world. I'm very good with good enough. Werner Earhart had this great line I heard years ago where he said, understanding is the booby prize. And for me, that is so true. Now, I could understand all the reasons why I chose never to have children. You know, I was the oldest of three before I was three years old. You know, my parents had no attention for me. All the I could give you all these stories. Understanding that doesn't really change anything. Understanding why you behave the way you behave for the most part doesn't change for most people. Maybe some cognitive therapy will help and change some stuff. But for the most part, understanding doesn't really make things better. So I don't have this deep need to understand. I just want if, if you say to me, you know, have you tried this? It really worked for me. And I try it and it works for me. I'm happy. I don't need to go to a, you know, two-week Joe Dispenza, meditate 17 hours a day thing to understand my pineal gland about why I need to be meditating at four in the morning.
0: Okay. Let's stay with this for a bit. What you're saying to me, the way I interpret it is excessive analysis perpetuates emotional paralysis. It doesn't change anything. Understanding sense making might be helpful but in terms of transforming behavior uh that intellectual understanding isn't enough but let's say you're i'm brian and you're ariel and we're in a relationship and let's say brian has an abandonment on a very very deep level like a real in his body it's somatic feels when he feels abandoned he's triggered he's uh, uncomfortable he can't sleep at night whatever it is i agree with you that sort of languaging it or articulating it or explaining where it comes from might be somewhat helpful, but it doesn't change it in the dynamic itself. Let's say there's something about your way of being that keeps igniting his abandonment.
1: We We have it only. It's not abandonment. He's a youngest child. His thing, he wants to be listened to and heard. I'm an oldest child. I'm the world's worst listener, you know? So in the very beginning, he would say to me, you're not listening to me. Now, I was always able to parrot back to him what it was he said, but I always knew he was right. I didn't have my full attention on him because I was always in my head more interested in what I'm thinking than what he's saying. So in the process of being a student of love and studying who's a fabulous guy from the University of Washington. Oh, anyway, he's another one of these genius guys. I began to understand what. I wasn't bringing to the table by appearing not to be listening and how I needed to physically face him and put down all my devices and pay attention and engage. Like I am now trained to listen in a way that is meaningful for both of us, you know, because I'm not triggering him. I'm getting to hear him. And when I, sometimes when it's kind of like, okay, I got to go do something. It's like, we got to put a pen in this. I need to go do such and such. I'll be back in and mm-hmm. Finish it. But those are communication skills that have taken years to develop because we were both committed to not triggering each other. You know, right. it's like right. he, he grew up in a pretty well-to-do family. And as the youngest child, he was also, I'm not going to use the word spoiled because he isn't spoiled, but he always had more than enough. I grew up in a relatively poor family. And being Jewish, have, you know, 5,000 years of DNA that there's never enough, you're going to starve. So I have all this poverty consciousness. We had to work through all of that because he had never met anybody with me who came home from school and the car was repossessed and the water was turned off and had fears of not having enough, right? And I had never been with somebody who only had designer clothes in their closet because their mother had taught them, you only buy the best. Whereas, you know, we went to Goodwill to get clothes. So there were, you know, boundaries and, and things to learn and understand. Ultimately, he taught me to appreciate high valued items that are well made, and I taught him how to shop sales at Saks.
0: Some version of schmutz. So, <laughs> so you're not. So this is yeah, this important distinction. You're not saying, in your experience, that. You know, you just say, "Well, I am who I am." You are, you are accepted. Don't accept it. You're talking about a a version of conscious relationship where you are owning who you are, and they are owning who they are, but where there's room to grow in your experience of the who you are, so that you can deepen and sustain a healthier love connection.
1: Yeah, and one of the one of the ways we do this, I wrote a book years ago called Wabi Sabi Love: Finding Perfection in Imperfect Relationships. And we created this thing that we do with each other. I'll just give you one example. One one day, I, I early in our manager, I had my hand on my hip and I was going like this. I don't know what I was ragging on him about something. I caught myself and I stopped and I was kind of embarrassed that I was behaving so badly. And I said to him, I said, uh, the next time I do this, and unfortunately there will be a next time, could you just kindly, gently... Sw- sweetly say to me, when did Sheila enter the room? Now, Sheila was my mother's name. And my mother, fabulous woman, loved her to death, but could be very bossy and overbearing, as can I. And Brian totally got it. And he said, yes. And the next time I'm too patronizing, you can call me Wayne. That was his dad's name.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: And so in an instant, we went from potential World War III to whenever I was getting like this. He would laugh at me and he would say, oh, I see Sheila's here. Or he'd be up on his soapbox and I was like, oh, geez, when did Wayne enter the room? And it would just dissipate with humor mm-hmm. as opposed to allowing and, ourselves. And wisdom.
0: And wisdom. Yeah. I mean, and there's wisdom too. That's
1: Yeah.
0: yeah that's beautiful. It's beautiful. So what's what now with the love thief? What's What are the next stages with the love thief? Uh, I mean, well, is I there a, is, is there a script on the go or something like that?
1: Uh, not yet. I have a producer who loves the book, wants to turn it into a limited streaming series, but there's a writer strike and tomorrow there's probably going to be an after strike. So nothing's happening there, but there's plenty of will and intention. And I'm starting to work on the audio book. I haven't done that yet because I don't want to go into a booth and read my book. That is so boring. What I'm going to do is create... A full cast audio. Every character in the book will have his or her own voice. There'll be a soundtrack and there'll be sound effects. So it's going to be this reaction. And I need voice actors who are about to go on strike tomorrow. So that's, you know, I'm working on breaking down the book into, you know, the various characters and identifying what kinds of voices I need. And I'm working on all of that, which is pretty intense. And then hopefully by fall, I'll have the audio book done. And that's as far as I've gotten, um, you know, in an ideal world, when we go to do the streaming series, I'll actually be a producer on it. And I'll go to India to work with the crew and I'll get to do all of that. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, except that the book's out. Yay.
0: Interesting to see who plays Deepak.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, I had found this Indian actor that I thought was going to be perfect. And then I researched him and he's dead. I don't know.
0: Probably, probably not perfect. In your imaginings, who would play Holly and who would play Jackson?
1: Bobby Cannavale would be Barry, the villain. I don't know who would be Jackson. There is an actress, a pretty well-known actress, uh, who I'm not going to name right this second, who mm-hmm. is reading the book right now. Oh, interesting. So we'll see. You know, those things are so hard to predict. You know, so so I don't know. I, I'm going to leave that to the professionals. I'm going to work on the voices, and the voices for the most part won't be famous people. But I, in my head, I know what they sound like. Uh, but you know, there there are big time casting directors who can. You know, I hope I get some consultation in there, but I don't expect that it's going to be my decision.
0: Now that the book is done and you experience that wonderful feeling of relief that I relate to when a long book is done, have you now entered into the next phase, the horrifying next phase, when you're outside of it looking at the book and you realize there's some things you wish you had done differently?
1: No, because in the editing phase and the line edits and the copy edits, I went through that book so many times and I found... So many things, but in turn uh, that right now, there's nothing I would go back and change. Wow. Wow. Just,
0: that's a rare feeling for a long book.
1: Yeah, no, I'm something. very happy and satisfied with how it all turned out. Yeah, no, there's nothing I would change. I mean, if somebody points out a typo to me, that'll drive me crazy because I thought I got them all. <laughs> and, but every time I read it, there was always more, but I'm I'm pretty sure I got 99% of them. But no, I wouldn't change the story at all. I'm, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've read the book. And when I get to the end of the book, I still cry.
0: I still wow. get emotional when I
1: read the end of the book. powerful. Even I, I wrote it and I know it's coming. It still gets me.
0: That's powerful. You know, they yeah. say the best way to find the last group of typos, which doesn't usually happen, is to read the audio book.
1: Oh. Hmm.
0: I've had that happen.
1: Oh uh, that's, well, okay. that's so when I, you find like I, fortunately for me, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm in the good enough, but
0: I love this good enough thing. I love this yeah. good enough thing. It changes everything.
1: It makes it so much easier. You know, it's and a part of it is a lesson I learned a long time ago because there was a time in my life where I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be physically perfect. And I spent an entire year charting every single thing I ate. Working out like a lunatic, charting all my workouts. Mm-hmm. And I had this goal in mind that on a particular day, I would weigh X, all my measurements would be Y, all 10 of my nails would be the same length, my hair would do certain things. Like I had this goal of perfect. And I actually woke up one morning and I was at the goal. I was perfect. Mm-hmm. I was beyond perfect. I was also by myself at a Club Men in the Bahamas. And after three minutes of being happy that I was perfect, I was like, but who am I going to tell? Who's going to even know that I don't look any different today than I did yesterday if I knew anybody there. And I realized that my expectation was that being perfect was going to make me happy. And I saw that I wasn't happy, that I I looked great. I got some pictures from that day. I looked hot, (laughs) but I wasn't happy. And that, broke the spell of perfect. And I had to redo my whole thoughts about, well, how do I get to happy and what does that look like?
0: Well that sounds like a much gentler experience of coming to the realization that subjectivity matters more than objectivity. Holly, it seems, had to go through a much harder experience to realize that.
1: Yes. But you know, that's another one of the the unexpected lessons of the book, which is The worst things that ever happen to you will ultimately lead to the greatest things that do happen to you. The whole lotus in the mud thing. I mean, in retrospect, knowing how the book ends for Holly, if she could go back and prevent the nightmare she went through, she wouldn't because she wouldn't have ended up with a life that just is beyond her wildest dreams.
0: And yet completely human at the same time.
1: Right. And it wasn't the picture. life she planned for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for suffering for four and a half years <laughs> to bring your calling to life. Um, and I well, thank, you, thank
1: being... you for thank you for knowing just how painful it was, because, oh, you know, once you've been there, you can't even imagine what it's like to face the page every day and then open an artery. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, even if you're called to write, it sounds like you yeah. absolutely are. It's still a very challenging path. And I mean you it's masochistic. So you you have to really know that it's for you or otherwise don't even start.
1: Right. Yeah. I always tell people people sometimes say to me, Well, what kind of book should I write? And I say, You shouldn't write at all. Well, what do you mean? (laughs) I want to write. No. The only time anybody should ever write is when there's a book inside of them kicking and screaming to get out and you have no choice. If that's not happening. Go have a life, right? Don't, don't I totally out. agree. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, I encourage everyone to check out the Love Thief. Very uh, accessible. It's very down to earth, even in its not so down to earth initial moments. And I think that it, it invites us in the direction of asking the questions that really matter without complicating the inquiry as to what love is. When is it real? And when is it falsified? And can we reach a place? human development where we don't have to suffer through these kinds of horrible experiences because we're looking for some illusion that doesn't exist and we can get to the heart of what really does exist and where the potential really lies at earlier and earlier age over time i think it would save the species a whole lot of time to learn the lessons that always learn so thank you thank you so glad it found me. Over the moon and through stars, hell's come straight for my heart.